And we are live. Welcome, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. I am very, very pleased to have Dr. Shiva Aradurai, and uh, he is an MIT PhD and more acronyms than an alphabet soup in a windstorm. And uh, he has, of course, four PhDs, if I remember rightly. He also invented email. He's actually come on. He's, he's offered to recompense everyone for spam, which I consider to be highly generous uh, on his part. Uh, Dr. Shiva, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank, thanks, Stefan. Just to correct, I have one PhD, but four degrees from MIT. So four degrees. All right. Thank you. I want to take credit for stuff I didn't do. All right. So yeah. we're going to start big picture stuff with regards to health because uh, I consider this a free consult because you know it hurts when my elbow when I do this. But no, I want to start with the big picture with health. Uh, as you know, of course, Americans are suffering enormously under SARS-CoV-2, and one of the things I think that's a big issue is Americans have a natural state of relative ill health. And it seems like this is cracking the foundations that are already severely cracked. What is the story with Americans and lifestyle and profit motives and health and all that kind of stuff? Yes, yeah, Stefan, it's a great way to start the conversation. Um, if you look at the you know, arc of history, sort of medicine in America, it's, it's, it's been sort of unfortunate. In, it's unfortunate in one way and in another way, um, it's very fortunate in some of the events that are taking place. You almost have this two tracks taking place. So let's talk about the first part, which is the unfortunate part. Um, and that really be begins with the consolidation of the scientific establishment, um, the, the creation of big medicine, big pharma and big insurance. And the turning point of all of that, in my view, I mean, you can go to various points, but really all of that occurred in 1970 when you had, um, it started with essentially the Mansfield Amendment in science, which was a, uh, a which was a, a set of um, an act that was passed, a set of amendments, which basically in the late '60s, early '70s, um, which moved large amounts of funding to political institutions like the NIH and the National Science Foundation. So what happened was, if you look prior to that, and if you look at the prior to the history of sort of science and innovation in the United States, it was always occurring by hobbyists, right? It was occurring on the edges, which was what makes, what made America significantly an amazing country uh, was because it, I mean, you look at the founders of the country, these guys were children of the enlightenment, right? They studied science and engineering and, and they had an appreciation of particularly for innovation. The founders of the country really created the patent laws, right? To support innovation. So anyway, you have that whole journey and around starting in 1940s after World War II with the essentially the consolidation of this scientific establishment, which, which began post Manhattan Project, post, post Sputnik, the goal was out of fear. The goal was we needed to bring everything centralized. And so in 1970, up until that point, the military, which had a massive budget, and it used to take a very small slice of that budget, which was still a lot of money, and sort of just throw it everywhere. So you had guys doing wacky stuff, you know, really cool stuff. Uh, some people were doing number theory and, and cryptography and, and topology and, and places, you know, just went there. And these guys were, didn't, they didn't have to fight for grant money because they were good. They got this money and no one, no one ever thought about it. But at post 19, late 1960s, 70, during the height of the Vietnam War as was ending, it was decided that we would not fund any of this basic sciences research unless it was for weaponry. So a lot of that money got moved to these highly political organizations. So that was one important trend that was taking place. So the consolidation or the beginning of sort of the end of real science. Um, in 1940s, the reason I gave that date was that was when 
Vannevar Bush, the president of MIT, spun out Raytheon. And you know, David Noble, one of the one of the profound giants in the history of science, said that's when really real scientific research started ending because you had all this public money which started going to the military industrial academic complex. And that's who Raytheon uh, represent, re represented what, what Vannevar Bush created. So between the 40s to the 70s, you had the, the creation of big science and concomitant with that, if you remember 1970s is when big insurance companies, big pharma companies and big hospitals started coming together to uh, started to lobby government. And then as that process went forward, you had the creation of uh, something like the Safe Harbor Act in the late 90s, in the early uh, 2000, which allowed the creation of GPOs, group purchasing organizations and PBMs. A lot of people don't know about these, but if you look at hospitals, you know, let's say you and I were hospital administrators, we are, owned our own hospital. The equipment we bought in that hospital, be it ventilators, catheters, insulin, whatever it was, we used, we used to pay, you know, let's say $10 for a bedpan and I pay 10 bucks. And all of the hospital administrators said, hey, look, why are we all paying 10 bucks? Why don't we come together and group purchase? So GPOs were created. Now, initially these GPOs served the hospitals because they lowered the price from 10 bucks, maybe to five. And eventually these GPOs were controlling so much of the supply chain. They said, wait a minute, we're gonna flip the model. We're gonna not give 10 to five, we'll give 10 to eight or 10 to seven and we'll give a little kickback to you. You and I was legalized corruption and that legalized corruption was allowed by the a Safe Harbor Act, which was supported by Congress. So, so you had big academia being created, big science, and now you had big hospitals and they created these in-between guys called GPOs on the in-house side and PBMs, which controlled the supply chain to three or four major like Walgreens, you know, so you had Middlemen who don't, who didn't know any, who, who didn't do anything, Stefan, but essentially owned the supply chain contracts, and then you had essentially big pharma, big pharmaceutical companies, which basically recognize that there was help, there was profit in sickness, hmm. and 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 you know pharmaceutical advertising was allowed, right? You start advertising industry basically. There was a time that it wasn't allowed, and one of the so you have big hospitals big pharma and big academia, big scientific establishment. And that's what we're witnessing right now. We'll talk more about that, but what, we, what we're seeing is a, is a total convergence of those three entities, which don't give a damn about people's health because it's not really about public health. This is about making enormous amount of profit. And the reason that's being motivated right now, you know, when I finished my PhD at MIT in 2003, I had created a technology which could model molecular pathways on the computer. The reason that one of the motivations of that was we were recognizing in biology that biology had become dysfunctional, that biologists were looking at the parts, right? So you got you get a Nobel Prize if you understood how two proteins interacted. You could win a big Nobel Prize for that. But the notion of interconnecting those parts and understanding the body as a system was not part of the, the biologist's um, you know, uh, repertoire. So what was happening in biology was when the genome project ended, we found out we only had 20,000 genes. We don't have 100,000, a million genes. And in fact, we have the same number of genes as a worm. So biologists had thought complexity was a function of the number of genes, which means more genes, more complex. When an engineer knows that's, that's not true. You could have 50 parts and someone else could have a thousand parts. You could organize one linearly, but you know, the thousand, or you could organize a 50 in a very complex way so complexity is really a function of interconnections. So that put 
biology and a new trajectory called systems biology. It was a new department at MIT created under the Department of Biological Engineering or a new field. And I was one of the first graduates. And to me, it was great because I'd always wanted to do medicine, went in and out of MIT, did a bunch of degrees, grew up in, in India when I was a child where I saw my grandmother practice a traditional system of medicine, heal people, started doing medical research as a research fellow when I was 14, where I created the email system. But I never could want to do, become the MD because something never felt right, Stefan. But in 2003, what happened was because biology was frankly failing um, and it recognized it wasn't, it had nowhere to go except taking a systems approach. One of the fields that evolved out of that was precision and personalized medicine. And it recognized the right medicine for the right person at the right time. You can't say everyone should get the same vaccine. Everyone should get the same drug, which is going back to what traditional systems of medicine were. But the important thing that took place was pharma. This is where I think this has been motivated. Um, when I created this technology, Cytosol, the reason I created it was the National Science Foundation said the grand challenge is imagine you could model disease on the computer. Because if you could do that, you could get a directionality at minimum. Hey, we shouldn't be even doing this drug. It's going to cause this toxicity. Or you know what? These combinations of things could cause toxicity. Or, hey, this thing has a lot of promise. Maybe when we mix curcumin and resveratrol, it can lower inflammation. Maybe we should pursue that. So, But these are complex molecular equations and reactions. So I created a technology which could, in fact, model disease, which people thought was in, intractable. So when I finished that, my advisor and I were like, wow, who would want to use that? And we said, wow, pharma would want to use that, right? Because they're, and the reason we said that was when we had done the data analysis, pharma was miser since the 1980s, they've been tanking, they've been failing. And there's a very great uh, research paper I'm just finishing up. It shows how the entire pharmaceutical engine, this is where Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton and Gavi will talk about this. They're really the, they're really the front end um, marketing personnel for this because what's happened is it's a multi-trillion dollar industry globally, pharmaceuticals. And what's happened is um, a pharmaceutical drug, if you want to understand the regulatory framework, you have to go through a whole series of processes before, let's say you discovered in your lab today, hey, I have this compound. By the way, when I say pharmaceutical drugs, these are molecular compounds that do not appear in nature. They're not natural compounds. They're made in a lab. And today we have about 30,000 of these compounds in what are called these libraries. There could be more, but let's say around 30,000. So what, how, how do pharmaceuticals develop? Someone takes a test tube, you know, and they throw in some cancer cells, and then they test compound A, compound B, compound B, compound C, and they say, wow, I see something happening here. I see it potentially killing these cancer cells. That occurs in, let's say, a lab at Harvard or MIT. The professor then, one of his graduate students, they leave and they go raise 40, $50 million. Then they go get a bunch of lab space. They do more test tube testing in vitro. Then they'll go kill a bunch of animals for another six years, see if that same, that same phenomenon where they'll buy mice from companies like Charles River who create these mice with tumors or a particular thing, and they'll give them the same compound and they'll say, wow, it reduces the tumor and we're not killing too many mice. So what they're trying to figure out is a dosage. That, that may take around six years. They may spend close to a billion dollars just in that, or let's say half a billion dollars. If they get to that point, then they will go to the FDA and file what's called an investigational new drug filing, an IND. And I, by the way, I've gone through this myself. It's quite an interesting process. And then the FDA looks at all your animal data and they say, okay, we're going to give you an allowance where you can now go do phase one trials on humans, small sets of humans. 
And then if you do that, then you can go to phase two, phase three. Well, that entire process can take upwards of 13 years, Stefan, mm. up to $5 billion. Now think about this business model. So you now the day that you discovered, remember I said in the test tube, that's when the clock starts ticking because you may file a patent. Patent life is only you know 20 years, right? So they got 20 years to go down this path. Now, after 13 years, you only have seven years of patent life left. Let's say you spent on the, on the high end about $5 billion. And let's say your drug only has around, I don't know, 100,000 people, you can use it, okay? So that's five times 10 to the power of nine divided by one times 10 to the power of four, which is five times 10 to the power of five, which is about $500,000. You're gonna have to charge for that drug for let's say potential market share of 100,000 to make back your costs. Now that's just to make your costs back. So if your market size only 100,000, you have to charge, so you're probably gonna have to charge a million dollars, right? A chemotherapy agent. So, and they only have seven years before it becomes a generic. So what's happened is, and if your drug goes out there and it causes side effects, you and I can sue that company and we can recoup. So what pharma has realized is, Jesus, we're spending $5 billion. Then we have to go do, by the way, the marketing costs aren't even included in that. All the marketing they have to do. And then we may get a set of customers. Now those customers may sue us, high liability, high risk, so and you that's also what, sorry, but you also have to cover the costs of the trials that don't make it through to the end. Exactly. Right. Right. So so we're, and by the way, only twenty percent of the things entering phase one make it. So when I created Cytosol, I said, "Wow, I could help these guys, you know, understand toxicities way up front." The problem is they move quarter to quarter to quarter, and they weren't interested in my technology. And frankly, I wasn't interested in them either. I really was interested in natural products. In fact, I could have helped them figure out if their vaccines worked or not. We put that out there. In fact. We applied for a DARPA grant, but they're not interested in that. What the reality is, is that their business model is already, it's like a locomotive engine. They do this and they do this. Remember, it's all about getting funding and getting VC money. And then when you make it to phase one, phase two, your stock price just takes a tick. They already have it figured out as a business model of moving it down that pipeline. It's about, okay, I made it through in vitro. Okay, I'll raise another 100 million at a higher valuation. Now I'll do my animal test studies. So the entire pharma model is pushing it down that pipeline and you're cranking up the valuation of your company. And that's, that's that model. It's, it's, an, it's not even about solving a disease. It's about making enormous amount of money. But the problem is once the regulatory framework came in there and even the FDA, which is pro pharma, was not releasing their drugs because of the side effects, they were in a conundrum. And to give you the numbers, year over year over year, Pharma is spent, spends about, they putting in 30% increase in the R&D budgets. And they're finding year over year over year, 30% less allowances. So their model's freaking failing. Hmm. So that's happening over here. They're literally seeing the burning down of their industry. So, the, so pharma companies are now moving to a different area, vaccines and what are called cell therapies. These do not need to go through the same regulatory framework. In fact, they're treated as another class called biologics. So this is why if you look at the 30 vaccines for kids that were pushed forward by the CDC as guidelines, not one of them, Stefan, has gone through double-blind placebo-controlled studies. It's quite extraordinary. And one HPV vaccine that they claimed they did, and I want to come back to that, talk about it, was absolutely fraud what they did. And we'll talk about that. So they don't have a regulatory, they don't have to go through the same re regulatory framework. And if you look at the history of this process, starting in 1962, John Kennedy signed the National Vaccine Act. 
And that was based on a very, very rudimentary understanding of the immune system, which is what's still used today by guys like Fauci and, and, and Gates to put forward it. You know, it's very different than the understanding of the immune system that I've put forward. And in fact, I gave the prestige lecture at the National Science Foundation um, on this. They didn't invite Fauci or Gates to give that lecture. They invited me because of the knowledge I have around that. And we'll talk about that. But the fundamental issues, the very rudimentary understanding that they had of the immune system in 1962 was the basis post-polio vaccine, pre-measles vaccine that John Kennedy uh, uh, instituted the National Vaccine Act, which gave rise to the CDC and the powers for them to come up with the vaccine guidelines. So now follow after Kennedy signed that into law from 1962, 24 years later, 1986, while well, people were starting to report injuries from vaccines. Hmm. They were suing the vaccine manufacturers. Now, instead of eliminating those vaccine mandates, because in those 24 years, we'd started to learn very different things about the immune system. What did we do? Well, his brother, Ted Kennedy, comes in you know, Reagan was a president, but it was democratically controlled House and Senate. And they basically said, instead of eliminating these, this, the, the guidelines, they said, you know what? They put a big Band-Aid on it. And that Band-Aid was to create the National Vaccine Injury Program. Hmm. They were getting, you know, uh, tens or 20 every day uh, vaccine uh, court filings. So what they did was this National Vaccine Injury Program literally in some ways destroyed the Constitution. They carved out part of the court system out of the US judicial system, and they put it under health and human services, a vaccine court, Stefan. And that vaccine court said they would adjudicate on behalf of the vaccine manufacturers, the lawsuits. This means you shielded, you indemnified the vaccine manufacturers, and you set the limitation of liability, I think for death was around $250,000. And they made it a very bureaucratic process. Now Reagan signed that very, very unwittingly because it was embedded into another bill that he wanted to get through, okay? Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was the other Kennedy with Orrin Hatch and Waxman put together this massive Band-Aid, which basically created a Chinese wall for the vaccine manufacturers. Now, since then, there's been more injuries. And what's unfortunately happened is, instead of the movement bottoms up, trying to say, get rid of all this nonsense, you've had guys like Bobby Kennedy, so-called anti-vaccine fighters, what they've done is they're part of the not so obvious establishment. And when I got into this, I sort of took me a while to figure it out. Instead, they've been tweaking it, you know, begging to legislators, oh, protect our religious exemptions, do this. Instead of saying all of this stuff should go away, all of it. And what's interesting is who has been behind when you, so when you come back to now the big pharma, the big academia and the big hospital establishment, that triumvirate, you know, centered and um, founded by something very, very powerful, three foundations, two at least, and one more recently, the Gates Foundation hmm. and the Clinton Global Initiative, both together with the WHO, CDC, UNICEF, all these other people we didn't ever elect, okay? Together, um, uh, the Gates Foundation created what's called GAVI, you know, a uh, vaccine alliance. And if you look at their consortium, it's vaccine manufacturers, UNICEF, World Bank, and they funded that to about a billion dollars. And so the, the, the Clinton Global Initiative and the Gates Foundation are sort of the two double numbers, sort of the twins in this are part of this with a whole consortium. And the goal is they're really the frontsmen for big pharma. They're the frontsmen pushing. And, and when you actually work out the numbers, they're basically carving out the different vaccines and they have the pharma consortium behind them. And what's their business model? Let's just look at it from pure 
their quote, quote unquote, entrepreneurial business model. This is a goal. Pharma is crashing. They're saying, wow, you know, I create a drug, you know, I only have 200,000, a million people who have cardiac disease, whatever, you know, or 300 million. Imagine if I could create a product that everyone had to take, right? That's like the biggest business opportunity, right? You know, uh, email was one of them, but you know, you couldn't make money off that because I couldn't patent it at the time. But imagine everyone had to breathe air and you had to charge for that. So imagine if we could get everyone having to get a vaccine. So well, it's a replacement yeah. for the carbon tax or at least a supplement to it, I suppose, because everybody yeah, uses exactly. energy. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so what's fascinating is the people who support the mass immunization of everyone are the same people who support the carbon tax nonsense. You know, I did this video exposing the Paris Accords, which is out there. But if you look at those two, and in fact, if someone supports this and they don't do this or they do this and not this one, they're probably the not so obvious establishment. Okay. So, because, you know, they play both sides. So, for example, you have a Bobby Kennedy who attacks Bill Gates, but on the other hand, is mum on Hillary Clinton, in fact, endorsed her three times. He is pro-vax, he's against vaccines, but is pro-climate change. So we, we have the not-so-obvious establishment sort of being a chameleon to try to manipulate activists at the bottom. So, so if we look at this, where does all of this come from? If you look at the history of Big Pharma, they're enormously, enormously successful at amazing PR and marketing and amazing. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I, you know, separate from the invention of email in 78, in 1993, while I was at my PhD work, I had my next sort of life with email, where if you remember, remember in 78 to 93, email was really used in the inner office mail environment. But in 1993, something happened. Remember the World Wide Web took off. We created that GUI front end and email moved to the, uh, to, to the web as a consumer application. Well, the White House was getting tons of inbound email in 1993, and they didn't know how to handle it. It was email overload, and the White House sponsored a competition, an AI competition, where their technologies, which could automatically read the content of the president's email and categorize it so we respond. Anyway, I ended up winning that context in the middle of my PhD, left MIT, and I started a company to analyze email for customer service. It could be used for understanding marketing, uh, et cetera. But one of my leads was Burson Marsteller. Burson Marsteller, if you look at them, is one of the number one PR agencies in the world. You know, large corporations call them in for crisis management. When there's a crisis, like let's say Toyota has to do a recall, they, have, they bring these guys in to massage the public. Well, so I was meeting one of the senior VPs, we went out to dinner and I said, tell me one of your greatest things, because they were interested in using our technology to watch email so they could see a crisis emerging from our analytics. So he said, well, you know, I was called in to help Eli Lilly. I'm the guy who saved Prozac. I go, really? I said, what did you do? He goes, well, Eli Lilly's stock was tanking. No one was, people were start stopping to take Prozac because of side effects. And so I said, what did you do? He goes, well, first of all, I rebranded themselves. I forgot what their branding was. Like it was something like they were a drug company. He changed it to like, we helped the world. Okay, number one. The second thing he did, which I thought was quite amazing, and it was unbelievable. He said, you know, we um, created two nonprofit companies. One of them, I forget what the one was. One was, I remember this vividly. He said, we created a company to stop battering of women, a nonprofit. So this nonprofit took out ads, front page ads in newspapers. And it said, you know, we have to stop women's battering. And it would say, if you know someone's husband who's not taking his Prozac, <laughs> please, it's very insidious, right? Putting forward this thing of we want to help the world. And then on the back end, selling people 
uh, pushing people, community pressure. You see what I'm saying? It's fascinating. Community pressure to make sure your husband, you know, domestic abuse, that kind of stuff, layer in Prozac sales. And I go, what happened? He goes, enormous, huge success. So now fast forward that to, and there's many examples of this. You watch the typical pharmaceutical ad, you know, a horrible situation. You take the pill and utopia. Well, in 2015, the World Health Organization, the UN, et cetera, a bunch of conglom- uh, these collaborators created the Strategic Development Goals 3, SDG 3. What was SDG 3? It was essentially similar to this process. We're going to paint a utopia. You know, we're going to have no more pollution, no more income inequality, no more um, pov- you know, poverty. It's 17 point stuff and 17 point plan clearly architect, anyone can go read this, it's not even hidden, SDG3. Now, adjunct to that, so that's the utopia that gets painted, by the way, supported by Gavi. All right, Gavi's one of the big sponsors of SDG3, supported by the Clinton Global Initiative and the Gates Foundation. So this is a PR, we're gonna deliver you utopia. Right behind that is IA2030, about immunization, which says, the front cover of that says, we must not leave anyone behind. The front sentence says, everywhere, everyone, everywhere, everywhere will be vaccinated. We must, they must realize the health benefits. And in the connection between these two, they say to achieve at least 14 of those points of the 17, which will leave us to utopia, we must immunize. So they've connected immunization to everything, the workforce, climate change always also needs vaccination, everything. But what 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 could this, what the, could the, let me let me start the question again? What could be the conceivable logic behind needing people to be immunized in order to achieve utopia? Well, think about it. So let's just step back as a business model. This is people sell. I don't know. I want to sell coffee, right? Nescafe. Oh, you feel great when you drink this coffee. Everyone should be drinking coffee. That's what every CPG company wants to do. Procter and Gamble wants everyone to be using their toothpaste, right? We created toothpaste as a phenomenon. So the model here is to create vaccines as the you know standard of uh, standard procedure SOP for protecting yourself from infectious diseases. That is the ethos. Now, if you can get an audience, a market of 7.2 billion people, let's say on average spending about a thousand bucks a year, that's a 7.2 trillion dollar recurring market. Now, imagine this, if you could get the government so, uh, it's public so afraid that they impose this as a mandate. Now you've created a consortium. So Gabby is leading this consortium with two of its cylinders, Gates Foundation, Clinton Global Initiative, which are probably being funded in all sorts of, I mean, many incestuous ways. Back ending that is a major big pharma companies who are part of Gabby. They're the consortium partners. In fact, the SDG three goals is supported not just by the WHO and the United Nations, but the IFPMA, the Institute International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers. The three leadership council of that is Eli Lilly, Shinogi from Japan, and Roach. All right, so this consortium, it's an ad campaign, man. That's what it is. Massive ad campaign filtered through fake science, which we can talk about. And the goal is 7.2 billion people, a captive audience, don't, don't even have to market to them, so imagine taking from a verticalization model, which Microsoft w- was very enormously successful at doing. By the way, the strategy brought to you by McKinsey. McKinsey, uh, Gates Foundation hired McKinsey to map this out. 
So the model here is that the mandate of vaccines takes place and you just like it's no longer countries right before the empires split up portions of territory. Now you're going to split up portions of people's bloodstreams. Okay, you own hepatitis B1 bloodstream, you own HPV, you own this bloodstream. That's so if you think about it from a pyramid model, you have God knows who the trillionaire trillionaires names who we don't know. But right behind them is a visible deep state, the CDC, the WHO, the foundations, Chan Zuckerberg, etc. And behind them, you have the pharma companies who need this to serve their masters who invest in big pharma. Oh, wait, wait, I've had a thought. What if, Dr. Shiva, what if you could face a disease that mutated every year and then it wouldn't be like a one-time smallpox or polio vaccine, but you got the hamster wheel of infinite cash coming your way? It's recurring revenue. Look, when I built my, um, when I built my, uh, when I did email, right? Interesting enough, in 1978, um, people, you know, asked, was it commercialized? Well, in the old time-sharing systems, we used to charge for it. Um, based on how much time you spent. So it was a recurring revenue model because the more email used, you made more. And the idea was to make email a necessary app. Fast forward to another application when I built this company, EchoMail, to analyze email. In our contracts, we made it a recurring revenue model. So once we put the license in, you paid us for so much email usage and it was an annual contract. So every investor knows, every VC, every Big guy in the market loves, not just you have to sell services, right? Services companies only get a 1x return, you know, but if you have a company which you get recurring revenue, you get a much higher multiple on your stock price. So imagine to your point, every year you have a new need for a new vaccine, new variations, new mutations. Now you have 7.2 billion people. Again, I use that $1,000 number. It could be 2,000, it could be 100. My point I'm making is, you have a beautiful recurring revenue model. And in order to get that recurring revenue business, what do you need? You need an amazing marketing campaign, a global marketing campaign. And that's what we're right in the middle of now. Whenever you do marketing campaigns, what do you do? You typically do a soft launch and then a beta launch and a gold launch. Well, the soft launch was event 201. Test it out, how does it work, work out the kinks. We're in my view, we're in the middle of the beta launch seeing how you do it in live. Now the full launch will probably be next year. If, if they pull this off and scare everyone, and that's why I've been doing my videos and I've been out there educating people on the immune system, is that the full launch looks like this. Okay, do you want, do you want the economies to be crashed again? Do you want everyone to be in their homes? Look, let's just put every, everyone gets a vaccine card. You don't want your neighbor screwing up the economy, do you? Do you want Bob screwing it up? Or do you, sure want to, do you want to have a driver's license? Uh, it's a nice economy you exactly. got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it and you weren't allowed to drive. Exactly. Or you weren't allowed to take your kid to daycare. Or you weren't allowed out of your home or you couldn't go to your gym or you couldn't visit your parents in another country. So what? that is what the goal is. It's a 7.2 billion person market opportunity worth you know seven upwards of $10 trillion year over year. So from their standpoint, Everyone says, well, why would they do this to the economy? Well, it's, an, it's a return on investment. You put enough fear, you crash the economies just enough. By the way, they get a double whammy because the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese involved, they have a lot of you know, dollar reserves. You crash the economy, you buy things on a song now, so you're going to make your return anyway because as you kick this back up, you're going to make money on that and you're going get, to also get indentured servants because many of the large Chinese financial houses actually are the ones who funded banks like well or lenders like Wells Fargo. 
So when the U.S. working class crashes or the world working class, well, now they're going to also get a rental revenue. They'll get two sets of revenue. They'll get revenue from recurring on rent because people won't be able to afford their homes. And they're going to also get the bloodstream revenue. So it's really a recurring revenue model. And Bill Gates knows about this because Microsoft realized that they weren't going to make as much money selling just simple software. They had to move to the cloud where you could get a recurring revenue model. So this is a well, uh, well thought out business model. And that's why Gates funded hundreds of millions of dollars to McKinsey to do all of this. So those people listening out there, you need to understand these people are very sophisticated, highly organized, very adept. And that's why they not only have the avert frontmen like Gates, but they also have the people who confuse people, Stefan, who try to say, yeah, I'm fighting against vaccines, you know, I'm for medical freedom. Guys like Bobby Kennedy. He hasn't done jack for vaccines. He's misled the movement. And when I got involved in this movement about, you know, I've been in the health thing forever, right? Studying health systems, immune system. When I came into it, I said, something doesn't smell right. You're basically telling everyone should get the same vaccines. There's no va vaccine safety assessment standards. But I said the only way out of this, we have to build a bottoms up militant revolutionary movement, not this negotiating with legislators. That's what these nonprofits were doing. You know, they take money from these poor moms who are afraid. Everyone was giving money to Children's Defense Fund and these, you know, these guys like Big Tree, right, who are start, starting to want to build his own media thing. But they didn't understand the fundamental issue that this is so fundamental. We have to have an uprising bottoms up. So. I led one of the big movements in New Jersey, which I said, screw this negotiating with these corrupt legislators. Let's march on the streets. They were so afraid they didn't pass the bill. They didn't even bring it up. It was that was January 6th, 13th, Stefan. And that's right after that is when you see the coronavirus start coming. Hmm. It wasn't accidental that we saw all this dissension taking place globally in Hong Kong. Millions of people protesting in Wuhan, anti-pollution protests, not anti-CO2 pollution protests. You know, uh, in, in France, Venezuela, India, a populist uh, um, leader gets reelected. The United States, Trump, in the midst of all this anti-establishment commotion is when we impose this thing called a, quote unquote, a pandemic. So all of this is beautifully well orchestrated. But I, I just want people to think about this. Forget conspiracy for a second. By the way, it's not there is a deep state. But just think about it from a marketing campaign over here with a product development strategy over here. That's what this is. Gates, McKinsey is the architect and the Clintons, and they're probably getting paid off enormously on the back end. Remember, these foundations are enormous business operations where they literally steal money out of the public coffers and they act us, they make us look, they want us to make, oh, isn't Bill Gates and, uh, and Warren Buffett such nice people, they're giving away their money. They're not giving away their money. They're taking it out of taxes and they're putting it in a foundation where they only have to give 5% of the assets away. They, they get to keep the other 95%. And then on top of it, they like to act, they like they make us think they're the saviors of the world. So they get triple whammies out of this. They get to keep their money, they get to look good, and then they get to control public policy. Right. That's what's going on. And okay, so hang on, hang on. While, while we, we've dropped Dr. Well, you've dropped Dr. Fauci's name a couple of times. Why is it that you have such distaste for our friendly little garden gnome of global health? Well, what is your issue there? Well, uh, a number of things. Um, as someone who's gone through, you know, the academic world in and out, I, I used to teach at MIT, has done science. I've been, you know, uh, I, I published in the major peer review journals, a Fulbright scholar. I get, you know, I, I, I'm known as one of the leading guys in personalized and precision medicine. Now, the notion of science 
two things that emerged from the biological sciences was we need to move to a personalized medicine. One size does not fit all. That's an understanding that even comes from conventional modern medical science starting in 2003. One size does not fit all. In fact, if anyone wants to Google personalized and precision medicine, it is the now and the future of medicine, which means you don't give everyone the same medicine. Now look at Fauci and look at the history of the NIH. The NIH starting in 1970 again, a guy called Shannon comes in and he wanted to consolidate immense amount of power underneath him with the NIH. And that's when you saw the explosive growth of the NIH to become a multi-billion, $10 billion, $20 billion entity. 50% of the NIH funding goes to the biological sciences. So if you, are, if you want to become a professor, Stefan, at any of the major universities, how do you become a professor? You don't just be a nice guy and you just publish papers. That's not how it works. You have seven years from the time you graduate with your PhD and you start on that tech, seven years to get tenure. Well, how do you get tenure? You have to publish a series of papers in a specialized field, get yourself known, and this is the big and. You have to get your peers in that field. So if you're in cancer oncology or retrovirus oncology, or you're in uh, mitochondrial membrane protein folding, I don't know, some very specific field, you have to publish papers in that field in those seven years. And you have to get the other leaders, the people who've been doing for 20, 30 years to say, yes, Stefan is a great researcher. And they have to write reference letters for you. And they have to cite your research in their papers. So what this means is you as a young researcher must, uh, you know, must regress to the mean. The mean <laughs> meaning what they have set as the standard, okay? You can't do wacky research, all the wild innovative research. In fact, the, the NIH grants, you know, I've applied for them. They're no longer about innovation. You have to, when you apply for a grant, you already have to have data for the thing you claim you're going to try to do in specific aim one. So it's all rigged for people who already have the data, who already are insiders. So this is one thing that needs to be understood. So when you look at that, Fauci, the NIH, where he's a central part up with Francis Collins, funds 50% uh, of their money goes to, billions go to biological sciences. So if I'm a young researcher, I'm never ever going to say anything against the accepted narrative. I will never get funding. I will never ever get tenure. Now, I know a lot of guys at MIT who know, you know, I know the stuff about the immune system. They say, Shiva, everything you're saying is correct, but I'm not going to say anything against it. They have families to feed. Remember, science has become a factory, Stefan. It's not the old days of where you looked at science, you came up with cool ideas. It's not a hobbying thing, you know, on the edges where people are doing, you know, they went and got private funding and they had to figure things out. It's become a machine. And Fauci, the reason I have such anger towards him is he represents the ultimate worst part of science. He's a scientific bureaucrat, a bureaucrat. He's an academic bureaucrat. You know, Kissinger said, if you want to learn how to be a politician, go to ac academia. <laughs> Look at this guy. He's been there across multiple presidents and his entire foundation from the infectious disease area he owns was based on a very fake science under fake science, uh, fake science, fear mongering. This uh, a rodeo that he ran, ran once, which is the HIV causality to AIDS. HIV does not cause AIDS. This is going to seem mind boggling to people. That was one of his first PR campaigns that he did. His predecessor, his compadre in this Robert Gallo, was brought up on scientific misconduct charges when he was trying to do this, where he was trying to show that HIV was causative to AIDS. He stole the viral 
data from the French uh, uh, guy, the virus, actual virus, and he created a bogus HIV test. Front page New York Times, you can see it. He was brought up on scientific misconduct charges. Well, you know who came to his rescue? Fauci. So Fauci came to the forefront. Gallo stepped back, but he built his career, you know. You know, he said, oh, I hung out with Bono. I got to meet Elton John. The whole thing with moving the discourse about HIV and infection was a cause of a non-infectious disease called AIDS, which is acquired immune deficiency syndrome where your T cell, CD4 T cell count goes below a certain level. So they attributed that to a virus again. And what, what did that do? It created the entire multi-billion dollar AIDS industry. It resurrected a drug which was never working called AZT off the market to an off-label use for AIDS, which by the way, killed a lot of people. The reality is, you know, I think 60% of Zambia has HIV. They're not, you know, they're not dying. And one of the people that really exposed this was a real scientist, Peter Duisberg. Peter, one of the earliest tenured professors at Berkeley, one of the earliest people to get into the National Academy of Sciences, a multi-NIH grantee, a grant award winner. He said, wait a minute, this causal relationship doesn't fulfill Koch's postulates. What are Koch's postulates? It's the foundations of virology for which Robert Koch uh, was honored. You know, he won a Nobel Prize. And Koch's postulates go like this. Before, if you're the district attorney, you want to pin the crime on this virus or bacteria, you got to show four things, at least four things. One, if you have someone with the disease, let's say scurvy, by way of example, and you want to show this virus causes scurvy, you have to find an abundance, not like one little virus, because everyone has one a virus of something, an abundance of that virus in that person who has scurvy, step one. Then you have to be able to culture that virus in a test tube or a Petri dish. Step three, you have to be able to take that virus, inject it into an animal, a host, and show that that animal also experiences the same a disease state of that original. And then you have to be able to culture that back from that animal. Now, HIV never fulfilled Koch's postulates, and, even, and, and this is what Duisberg brought up. And to give you an idea how serious this is and how real it is, Stefan, when I was at MIT, I had read Duisberg's work back in 1993, and it all made sense to me because, uh, and I'll come back to that. So, but Fauci built his career on that. I remember taking John Essigman's class. John is one of the leading toxicologists in the world, an amazing professor. And John, in our class on systems biology, we got to viruses. And John was talking about viruses, virus infections, blah, 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 blah. And we were talking about the AIDS virus. And I was in the back of the room, around 40 graduate PhD students, very smart people. And I said, John, is it not true that HIV doesn't cause AIDS? Okay. The entire class comes to a complete silence. Now, because it was the, you know, that was a narrative. Now, this is at MIT, the number one institute in biological engineering. Now, John Essigman was very honest. He said, you know, what Shiva's bringing up is a very good point. He's bringing up Peter Duisberg's work that HIV's relationship to uh, AIDS does not fulfill Cox postulates. And then John Essigman also went on to say, and John's a tenured professor at MIT, he said, you know, I know Peter. He's a very well-respected scientist. But what happened to Peter Duisberg was they vilified him, they attacked him, they marginalized him. Peter stopped getting any of his NIH grants. So who was behind all this? Fauci. Now, Fauci has built his career as essentially a, 
a prostitute for big pharma. That's what wait, he really wait, wait, wait. Hang on, hang on. Sorry. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm hanging onto the back of the sled here as we go bouncing down this hill of knowledge. And, and I just lost one of my hand grips here. Okay, so we've got HIV, the virus. I guess that's like SARS-CoV-2 versus COVID-19, the manifestation or the, the disease. You've got HIV, the virus, and you have AIDS, the syndrome, which is the I mean, it's not the HIV doesn't kill you as far as I understood it. It lowers your defenses against something else, which is going to come and kill you like well, pneumonia uh, or something. So, so just help not, me understand where the causality yeah. changes based upon the common narrative. Okay, so, but let's, so um, in one of the early works, uh, Peter and other researchers looked at the first 87 AIDS cases. Remember, they always, if you ever see how they write it, HIV slash AIDS. Just look at how it's branded, HIV slash AIDS, HIV or AIDS. And I remember my sister's an MD when I found out about this. I said, hey, you know, this is not true. She goes, oh, you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. Now, 15 years later, she says, you know, you're absolutely right. It's age-related disease. Let's get down to the specifics. What is AIDS? What is AIDS? It's a term used to describe a condition in your body, in your adaptive system. Remember, you have the innate system, which is all the macrophages in your body that react when you first get hit with the, some type of pathogen in your gut bacteria, in your eyes, et cetera. That's your early stage immune system. There's another part of your immune system called your late stage immune system, the adaptive immune system, which are sharpshooters. And those are controlled by T cells and B cells respectively. They create an antibody for that pathogen. Okay. So the thesis here is, oh, you have lower T cell counts below a certain level. And when you have that, you have, you have acquired immune deficiency syndrome called AIDS, okay? Now, is that clear? So your yep. T cell count, so that means your adaptive system is compromised. Well, how did that happen? How do you get there? Well, HIV caused that. That was what the thesis was. When you actually go look at the first 87 AIDS cases, by the way, CDC statistics are horrible. You notice that most of those people at AIDS had all sorts of other viruses and some stuff, Stefan. They have uh, CMV, you know. But, but everyone has viruses in them all the time. Exactly, they had all these viruses. So they pegged this HIV to AIDS, but, but let's really look at the data. The original, if you look at the first set of cases, a preponderance of these people, 90% of these people, plus or minus 5%, whatever that number is, we can go, I, I, I can bring up the numbers, but it's in that order of magnitude range, were people who were, who were gays, males, predominantly, who, and you know, this was at a time in the 80s, lots of drugs, and no one wants to talk about this, right? It's politically incorrect. Lots of drugs. A, 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 a gay individual in that environment may have 1,500 partners. That was not rare. And they were consuming something called amyl nitrates. People should look it up. Oh, what that's Peter, a vial. You break it under your nose yeah. and yeah, yeah. And it increases Wait, orgasm. I, sorry, I just, I sounded way too experienced with that. I've just read about it. I just want to know it's not my weekend yeah, activity. I, so, okay. Yeah, so, so th remember, there's not one paper still written showing HIV causes AIDS. People should bring it up and we can have a debate on it. Okay. So Duisberg brings this point up and he says, however, there are 200 papers, 200 papers, 200 unequivocal papers showing amyl nitrites cause, is a carcinogen and cause Carposi sarcoma, which is what the, you know, people get their skin all screwed up, those blotches, all that's Carposi sarcoma. 200 papers written on that. Well, these guys were doing tons of amyl nitrites, partying all late at night, having multiple infinite number of partners, lots of drugs, okay? So that was that majority of the group. Well, you know what happens when you do that? You lower your T cell count. You destroy your immune system. 
Now, when you destroy your immune system, you're going to have all sorts of viruses in you. That's why people started cooking the books. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so this is why the fabled jump to the heterosexual population never occurred because majority of heterosexual people are not doing amyl nitrate and having 1,500 partners. Wait, 15. And remember, this was a decadent lifestyle at that time. It oh, yeah. was. Uh, look, I had a very close friend of mine at MIT. Many years later, he came out of the closet and he ended up getting AIDS and they put him on um, AZT and he died. And I said, Arnold, and, and it's a friend of mine, and because I, I what, what, when Duisberg's work first came out, it said these people felt, those 87 people fell into three groups. First group was this 90% of the people, okay, who were these predominantly male gays partying amyl nitrates. The second group was IV drug users. And people said, oh, the needles, the needles, the needles, bullshit. That's not what it was. It was a fact of the enormous amount of drugs that they were doing that also lowered their immune system. The third group, was people were getting blood transfusions. Mm. It wasn't the virus traveling through the blood. You know what it was? It was when I give you, if I were to you know, knock on wood, it never has to happen, you have to get a blood transfusion. What do they do? They give you immunosuppressive drugs because you don't want your immune system to attack, right, the foreign agents in the blood you're receiving. Well, if you get two shots of immunosuppressive drugs, you probably have to go to the IV, to the ICU, because you've lowered, you're in an immunocompromised situation. That's what the three groups were. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So, but sorry, sorry to keep interrupting. But doesn't HIV attack the T cells? And if not, if it's amyl nitrate, how do you explain the prevalence in Africa? HIV is a virus that's everywhere. It's not a. a it's it, in Africa. Lots and lots of people have it, and their population is explosively grown. People aren't dying. Hmm. It's another virus. And this comes back to what we not need to talk. We have 380 trillion viruses in our body. 380 trillion, okay? The mythos that has been created is this fear-mongering that viruses and germs are all gonna kill us. What actually happened, Stefan, now let's talk some science. The true science is you have this thing, an operating system in your body called the immune system. It's one of the most oldest operating system that has gone through, in fact, invertebrates, vertebrates, to create you. We would not exist if we didn't have an immune system. And if that immune system hadn't gotten, if you believe in, in, in the evolution, this entire process, or even if you believe in natural design, human beings would not freaking exist if we didn't have this amazing operating system called the immune system. And it's gone through various, various, various revisions to make us come here to be these human beings who build all this stuff, okay? That immune system, the way it interacts with the outer world is to live in coexistence with it. When, when a pathogen attacks you and hurts you, it is not the pathogen that's destroying you. So everyone needs to get the science here. The, the, the science that is assumed by the fake news media and is promoted, unfortunately, by MDs who are not well-trained at all. They don't learn this in medical school. They learn maybe the innate and the adaptive. They don't learn about the microbiome. They don't learn the following. If you ask a typical MD, what does the virus do to you? How does it work with Ebola? Well, the virus enters and it destroys your heart tissue. That's what you'll hear, right? And you start bleeding from inside out or the virus will attach your epithelial and you're gonna start getting edema. Well, that's not what happens. This is what actually happens. Virus comes in, your innate system, which is all the things in your skin, your eyes, your throat, first interacts with it, your macrophages, neutrophils. Now, if your body is reasonably strong, you may have a sniffle this. That's why in a family, five, 10 people, the wife may get the cold and others don't. Depends on the stage of the immune system. 
So if you're in that condition, based on your stage of your innate immune system, you battle it, maybe you get some sneezing, coughing, a little bit of fever, and you're done. Now, if that system doesn't work, you have what's called the interferon system, which is another amazing system, which upregulates all these different kinds of uh, uh, cytokines, which further protect your body. Okay, hang on, hang on. Upregulate cytokines, please uh, break that out for me just a little. Yeah, so, so it, uh, you know, my PhD work was on, on what's called the interferon system. So just stepping back, remember I said in 1962, they had a very nascent understanding of the immune system. Mm. So in 1962, the understanding of the immune system was the following. You had two boxes. One box was called the innate immune system, which was everything I described, the early stage infantry, the Marines, when you get hit with a virus, they try to take, they just start shooting everywhere. The secondary part of that system was, was, was called the adaptive immune system, which means it was very specific. It was like Navy SEAL sharpshooters. For that particular virus, it would create what was called an antibody using the T cells and the B cells. All right. Now, that was basically the understanding of the immune system. And part of this understanding is, oh, in order to create, to, to, to mimic immunity, we're gonna put you a vaccine in you, which will be a pale shadow of the actual virus coming in, like the measles virus. We're gonna kill it a little bit and we're gonna force your body, right, to create those antibodies, to create what's called immunity. Now, the problem is the vaccines weren't working when they just gave the deadened form of the virus the body wasn't creating that inflammatory response. They said, shoot, let's start adding other things. And what did they add? A little bit of aluminum, some, thimer, you know, some, some mercury, some other stuff to create that. So that, the goal of that was for your body to create this inflammatory response to create the antibodies, okay? But that entire understanding was just based on these two box model of the immune system. When I gave my, you know, the Distinguished Prestige Lecture at the Science Foundation, the reason they asked me to do this is because when you take a modern systems biology approach, you realize there's many other boxes, Stefan. There's a gut microbiome, which is essential to a strong immune system, the balance of all these amazing microbes, 60 trillion of them. And then we also have viruses, a 380 trillion virus. They're not our enemies, they work together. And then we have the connection between our gut to our brain, the neural system. But in between all of this is a very powerful system called the interferon system. The interferon system uh, was also discovered around the 50s, a lot of work done by the Japanese, which showed it's a missing link that interconnects a lot of these systems, that when you get a virus, guess what your body does? It actually turns on another set of chemicals called cytokines. These cytokines are used to not only, uh, they're, they're used to interfere with the viral replication process. So what's a virus trying to do? It comes in, it, it's sort of non-existent until it interacts with you. It wants to use your own cell machinery to replicate itself. The goal here is to stop viral replication. That's what you don't want, because when it gets bigger and bigger, then you get sicker, et cetera. So how do you stop viral replication is the key, right? Um, so uh, when you really look at a, a, a virus, uh, now go back to the HIV AIDS issue that I'm bringing up. So if your immune system is compromised, what actually happens? Well, remember I told you you have the interferon system. I mean, you have all these different subsystems. So it's like you got a nice V6 engine working with all, you, you know, all your pistons working. Now imagine what happens if you're consuming tons of amyl nitrates or for that matter, tons of sugar in your diet. What does sugar do? Sugar turns on candida. Candida creates gliotoxins. Well, those basically suppress your macrophages in your early stage immune system and the others knock out your T cells. 
Well, now what do you have left? It's like I've tied both arms. You've tied both arms behind my back, and now you're coming at me, and I'm going to kick at you crazy, right? In fact, I'm not going to kick at you just a little bit. I'm going to go violently crazy using my legs, and I may actually harm other people in my way. Right. So when you knock out some of these subsystems, which are part of a beautiful choreography, which all turn on and they modulate, it's called immunomodulation. Uh, immunomodulation is where, uh, like an orchestra conductor, all these instruments come to life, they modulate the virus and you don't have this massive, um, you know, a hyper response. But if you suppress some of these, Stefan, you only, you've tied the arms, so now your legs are kicking, in this case, the cytokines, not just the interferon, others go and attack not only the virus particles, but also attack the tissues where those virus particles are in. So let me walk you Oh, this is the storm that I hear talked about, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so let's walk you through this carefully. You, I, I have virus, coronavirus, flu, whatever, I sneeze on you. Well, it goes through your respiratory channels, it goes down your nose, and it goes down into your lungs, and it comes into one of your structures in your lungs, a very small structure, it's called the alveoli. Well, the alveoli is surrounded by epithelial cells, and I'm giving you sort of the shortened version of it. And inside of that alveoli, you have macrophages in the mucus, which is the innate immune system. And so what happens is when that virus lands, in the best case, your macrophages go attack that virus and they blow it up. Okay, they stop, even it, 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 it's consumed, it's taken out. If that doesn't occur, the virus will then attempt to replicate itself. And that replication process, if that proceeds, it's gonna hurt you. But if, in the case to stop that replication, first a macrophages attack, then your body produces the interferon response, it recruits um, other T cells, and you know, all of the stuff you don't even know about. That's why some pe- many people are asymptomatic. This is all happening. Well, what actually supports this process is a healthy working immune system. That's the discussion we need to talk about if we truly care about public health. Well, who is actually being affected? Who got affected by AIDS? Who was it affected? People freaking took amyl nitrates, people who are IV drug users, and people who are getting blood transfusions where their immune systems are suppressed. When I was out in Hawaii, I remember reading Duisberg's work on this, and the woman I was staying with was the mother of a friend of mine, and she had gotten AIDS. And I, after I read this book, I said, wow. I said, I can I ask you a personal question? He goes, sure. So I said, you clearly don't, you're not gay because uh, you didn't do that. Clearly you don't look like you got blood transfusion. I said, I must, I must assume that you were a heavy drug user. She goes, Shiva, I was a serious heroin addict for seven years. Okay. So she fell into one of those three groups, right? And she's the one, and she healed herself through really boosting up her immune system, had to go to Canada, got some very interesting treatments. The point is it's suppressed immune systems. Let's go to this COVID fear-mongering nonsense here. Who are the people who are actually dying? First, we don't really know because there is a political and a economic interest to brand everyone as COVID-19. And the WHO created two codes. Remember the WHO creates the diagnostic codes, which by the way, they charge for. It's a very interesting business model they have. So they created two codes for COVID-19, as I understand. They may have created three, but it's definitely two. One was you were actually um, labeled as having COVID-19 through a test. Well, what was that test? It's a PCR test, polymerase chain reaction. Well, what does that mean? That means they're looking for a piece of the nucleotide in your body, and then they magnify it and try to match it to one of the coronavirus nucleotides. By the way, coronavirus is one of the most common, common viruses. We all probably have pieces of it. Okay, and they're not even looking for the entire sequence of the COVID-19. It's any corona, actually. And even Carrie Mullis, 
the people who created PCR will tell you. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. The COVID-19 test, which is supposed to be testing for SARS-CoV-2, is looking for any coronavirus, such as common cold it's a or nucleotide, flu. Or... It's a nucleotide sequence, which doesn't necessarily have to be that, okay? Because by, but furthermore, the PCR tests are highly, highly... Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine, who also supported Duisburg, I mean, uh, in chemistry. Amazing scientist. Kerry said the PCR test isn't even quantitative. It's qualitative. It's a qualitative test. Like binary. Okay. It's not quantitative. It's qualitative. It's a guesstimate that's made. That's one code that the WHO has. The second code they had as well sort of looks like COVID. So when people are coming to these hospitals and they're branding them into one of those two codes, in fact, I was privy to a letter that the CDC sent to hospital administrators. A, a, a very good friend of mine is a pediatrician shared. The letter basically is incentivizing hospital administrators to conflate one and the other. That's what's going on. So, Stefan, we don't really know what the numerator is. And I dare ask any one of these people, including Cuomo, to put all of this data in the cloud so I and other professionals can review it. And you don't have to put the names. You can follow HIPAA guidelines. Give the pre-existing conditions of these people. We had just a very close friend of ours who was a big smoker, friend of friend of ours' husband, big smoker, always would get pneumonia, had multiple incidents uh, of going to the hospital and getting intubated. Well, he was just COVID-19. Let's say, God forbid, something happens to him. What are they going to brand him as? COVID-19 death? Or forget the fact that he ate horribly, was you know, 40, 50 pounds overweight, was a smoker. That'll be forgotten. So that's what people need to understand. We have created, remember, because of big hospitals, because of the big academia, because of big pharma, these three people have colluded in a beautiful way to create this fear mongering. And well, if and, they uh, sorry, but hospitals also get paid extra for paid these extra. diagnoses as well. So there's a financial, this is, I think, one of the reasons why New York circled back and said, hmm, I think we found a whole lot more of our COVID-19 patients now that there's money dangling from the sky. There's money dangling and you have to understand that the, hot, the, the ventilator companies, remember I talked about the GPOs? Every hospital supply goes through a group purchasing organization. The hospital administrators get a kickback. I've spoken to, you know, when we, when we launched this petition, Fire Fauci, nearly 3,000 medical doctors have signed that. This is not because MDs are realizing before they thought they were top of the food chain. They're realizing, you know what? This COVID-19 quote unquote crisis has diminished them to become frontline medical workers who get treated like crap, or they're realizing they're basically part of the machine. They're really not any better than the other hospital line nurses who they used to actually step on. So that's a phenomenon that's occurred. But the bottom line is no one knows what the numerator is. And furthermore, the denominator is probably massive. Okay. It's, you know, this is a virus. There's many viruses that we get. Now we can start talking about bioweaponry. Was it created, et cetera. My point is this. Whether it's a bioweapon or not, it comes down to this fundamental issue. What do we do to support the immune system? That's the fundamental question. And how does the immune system work? Oh, so I've got I've got one idea. How about you yeah. don't stay inside and away from the sun? That's just one thing I'm gonna toss that's out one. there for funsies. That, that's one. That's one. Let me give you something even more powerful. I just did a video on this. Something even more powerful than that. Forget even foods, forget, I mean, I can talk about supplements. Let's talk about something even more powerful. You know what that is? Social interactions. <laughs> The number one reason, there has been a longevity study done many years ago, the number one reason when they looked at many, many cultures, they, they wanted to figure out why people live long. 
The number one reason, Stefan, was the top, here are the top three reasons. And the top three did not include food. You know what the number one was? Social interactions. We're social People animals. We're dogs, not cats. We need each other yeah. desperately. Health is yeah. a communal activity. Well, you can even, I mean, you can see dogs, you know, you don't give a dog enough. I mean, anyone, you can destroy someone. You can actually destroy someone. Uh, by way of example, you know, you know, I was, uh, I was brought up here, but there are sometimes Indians, you know, Indians have this arranged marriage model. It's mm -hmm. very interesting stuff that's not talked about. Indians, after they emigrate here, some of them still want to maintain connection to their culture. They'll go back to India and get back in an arranged marriage. They'll find some woman in a village. Poor woman has a huge social community. Bring her out of that. Bring her to the United States. They're married. And the husband goes to work and she's now stuck in a little, you know, little suburb with no friends. So many suicides. These people for, you know, we just had a very close, another close friend of mine. His wife had depression 40 years ago, you know, very extroverted person, completely well for the last 40 years. She just relapsed into massive depression because she can't go to the Y. She can't play bridge. She's lost all of her connection. There are a set of people who need those social connections. I would argue most of us, and if you don't have that, the research by Stephen Cole, by the way, there's a 1988 landmark study which clearly showed that lack of so social isolation would lead to detriment worse than high blood pressure, worse than obesity, and worse than even smoking. You might as well start smoking, okay? <laughs> if it gets no, you we, friends, you, if you have a cigarette yeah, and you have friends, you're better off. Right? right, but that's been scientifically shown. And then at the molecular systems level, the work of Stephen Cole, with humans and macaw monkeys socially isolating them, at the gene expression level, it's shown that your body will upregulate, upregulate genes which are inflammatory, and downregulate, which means suppress genes which cause viral antiviral activity. So think about that. So social isolation leads to viral infection and cancer and a number of other diseases. And I'm sorry, I just so wanted to interrupt as well. Uh, I've noticed that, you know, the left uh, often has this goal of getting you deplatformed, of getting your reputation so shattered that you're socially right. isolated. To me, this has always struck me as a kind of biological attack. It's an attack upon your immune system. It's an attack upon your very health because reputation and social gatherings, they're very, very important to us. Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's really the... Um, old model of some religions had guilt and shame, right? So you guilt and shame somebody and that's how you destroy them. So the goal is to guilt and shame people. And part of that guilt and shame, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people with masks, people without masks. And what's fascinating for me to observe is, you know, we have to, I'm running for US Senate, as you know. Uh, we ran last year against the fake Indian. This year we're running against both the GOP establishment and the Democratic Party as on the Republican ticket. but. We have to collect 20,000 signatures to get on the ballot. And we actually do it by hand. We have an amazing network of volunteers who love us. We have huge friendships. We're very close. We actually go collect. The other sort of cheaters, the three lawyers I'm running against, they hire people to collect their signatures. We've never seen them out there. We go out there and collect signature stuff. And what's fascinating is we will go to working class neighborhoods in Central Mass. Plumbers, electricians, they don't care about this nonsense because they know it's bullshit. They come out and sign. Where we go to Cambridge, all these educated elites, people wearing ventilators, ski masks, although, you know, it's, it's wild. You see the, the actual difference with, with common sense folks who can appreciate what's going on and really people are the vulnerable elites. As my friend Dick Lindzen used to say, when he talks about the climate change, people fall, fall for that. But that's what we've seen here. We've seen the fact that when I, getting back to Fauci, if you truly cared about public health, He's not making one comment. Let's take the really bad people. When I sent the letter to President Trump, I said, 
One of the groups of those people are the people with serious crisis situation. They're about to go on ventilators and we know there's only a 10 to 15% chance they're gonna survive. Well, what are they doing with those people? Well, here's a person, supposedly COVID, whatever it is, doesn't matter, they're in a crisis situation, which means our lungs are filling up with water, edema, fluid, and so that little alveoli, one of those alveoli, let's say has fluid in it, it's half filled, and let's just take simple physics, simple Boyle's law, you have a structure which has a certain volume, and now it has less volume, well, the pressure is gonna increase. So now you're putting hot, I mean, these ventilators are not just oxygen. They're actually pumping air, you know, you pressure. So what are you gonna do? So the, the edema is taking place in the lungs, and what is that? It's caused by the cytokine storm. Your body is in a reflexive, you know, overreactive stage. It's eating away at its own tissues in some sense. And then now you're putting more pressure, and there's a beautiful paper I shared which really shows how the high pressure ventilation exacerbates that. So that's why you're basically one of those doctors were saying that you're basically, you're basically drowning people in their own fluid. The solution to that has been shown over and over and over again in multiple studies is high dose, therapeutic dose vitamin C. So cheap. It's not a hundred thousand. I don't know how much these ventilator costs, $3,500,000. It's probably pennies on the dollar. Well, and what you don't need an expert to administer it. And you don't need an expert. High dose. I mean, I told, uh, when I wrote to the president, I said 100 grams over 24 hours, even if you take a less dose, which is by the way in the literature, 10 grams to 15 grams over six hours, what do you find? Why is vitamin C powerful? Well, first of all, it eats up reactive oxygen species, which is an antioxidant. It modulates the immune system. There's a chemical called GAPDH, which your overreactive macrophages start putting out. Well, it blocks that. So now you've modulated the immune system. It stops viral replication and you've supported that, and it, and it inhibits NF-kappa-beta, which really causes inflammation. So it's a four-part thing. And what are you gonna lose? Why aren't they doing it? Stefan, I had a, uh, one of the large newspapers, newspaper reporters call me, she goes, Shiva, can you tell me why you're recommending IV vitamin C? And I had a long talk. She says, you know, everything you're saying makes so much sense. You know, I take care of my health, I take vitamins. I said, are you gonna publish anything? I said, she goes, I probably won't be able to because my editor will stop it. And I said, isn't that unfortunate? But that's that because the ads from the pharmaceutical industries own the media. Exactly. So you have, you have a situation where none of these people like Fauci care a damn about public health. What he cares about is whether he, is, his, he creates his legacy of winning some medal, whether he does the bidding. Look, he's on the leadership council of the Gates Foundation. Uh, of the Gates Foundation, organ, they created a plan called the Global Vaccine Plan. He's on their leadership council, okay? So we didn't elect him on that. So this guy is an institutionalized creature who knows how to manipulate people. That's how you survive in academia. I mean, academia is totally about, I'm not talking about science. Academics make it by total manipulation. Mass, they spend 90% of their time how to get this graduate student, how to write this grant, how to phrase things. They're the masters of fraud, okay? Well, and the, the whole peer review system is utterly garbage. I mean, the replication crisis is hitting just, it's even hitting physics, which used to be, it's already hit the social sciences, it's hit psychology, the replication crisis is huge in science. And and then when we criticize this, we're considered to be like medieval, superstitious, anti-science people. It's like, I'm very pro-science, I'm anti-government programs like pseudoscience. Well, if they, if, they, if, if they also revere Einstein, Einstein didn't publish one paper peer review. <laughs> right. His last paper he submitted to, I think, Physical Letters, they said, Dr. Einstein, we want to Peer, send it to peer review he goes what are you talking about 
His view is how could peers review anything? You see, peer review is about regressing to the uh, mean. That's what it's about. So you're eliminating people with new ideas. So the issue should be should be citizen science. That's one of the platforms. So my platform for our campaign, Stefan, is quite unique, and that's why I think it's created a global wave. Sorry, just give, everyone... sorry to interrupt. Give people the website for your campaign before you go yeah. into that, because I do want people to be able to find you. So everyone should go to Shiva numeral four senate.com. That website is our campaign site. When you go to the top of that site, you'll see our logo is Truth, Freedom, Health, which has been one of my uh, things for nearly 15 years. So just as part of me. So it's not like I'm running a campaign. We had, you know, consultants help us. This is me. You're getting the authentic person here. So truth, freedom, and health. And what do I mean by that? We have to fight for freedom. You talked about censorship. Without, without open discourse and debate, without the ability to have, you know, disagreements openly, we will never get practice a scientific method. We will get into scientific consensus. That's sort of fascism, right? That leads to fiction, not truth. So scientific consensus leads to fiction. Scientific method leads to truth. So we need freedom to get to truth. One of the things I've promoted as a solution to that is we need to have a Digital Rights Act, which means a United States Postal Service, which this sounds really weird to people when I was doing a thing with Scott Adams, Scott didn't get it. And then he goes, oh my God, what you're saying makes sense. You know, and others now get it. The Postal Service was created by the founders of the country so I could transact a communication with you. It just happened to be in paper mail. And if anyone interfered, it was a 20-year sentence in prison. The Postal Service has a police force. So 1997, when email volume overtook postal mail volume, I could see the writing on the wall. I went to the heads of the Postal Service. I said, you guys should be offering a public version of email, a public version of YouTube and you know the Facebook. Oh, equivalent. that's covered under the Non-Interference Act. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Encryption ain't going to do it, Stefan, because we don't have any rights because everyone will try to, you know, encrypt. But, and the Postal Force is a police force. They thought it was a crazy idea. Anyway, it's it's interesting to see the Postal Service is going down again. And I was actually commissioned by the Inspector General in 2013 to write two reports to show how, how they could make billions because my thought was you and I would probably pay about 50 bucks. And remember, this will be a competitor to Facebook and Google, but more importantly, they couldn't interfere. If you want to use Google, great. So that's the Digital Rights Act. That's how we get freedom. We can start conversing in the in the digital world. Freedom and truth comes from Citizens' right, Rights Act. That's my second solution. What does that mean? That means we need to destroy the scientific establishment. And that destruction will only occur if we recognize that when we fund public research, that data is my data and it's your data. When they do research experiments, it should go right to the cloud. If someone does an experiment on a mice, whatever they do, put it to the cloud. It's my data. I'm pretty smart. There's a billion other people or a hundred million other people in this country who are smart. Download that data. So first thing this will affect is where is all the climate change data? I want to see oh, it. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but this is the, was it the original hockey stick graph. Once they released the methodology, right. they realized you could plug random numbers into it and get a hockey stick graph. Exactly. Exactly. So the issue is we need to go to citizen science. We need to take the power away from the academics. Because remember, in the Indian caste system, the academics were the Brahmins, the scribes, and that's what we've created. Fauci is really a quote unquote a Brahmin, okay? Who's a scribe who advises the king, in this case, the politician. He's always there, right? Presidents come and go, this guy's always there. They shouldn't allow these guys to be in there this long. In fact, we should eliminate tenure. Tenure should be taken away. Let these guys teach and then go back and work. Well, Especially tenure, of course, was originally to keep people who had unpopular opinions from getting fired. Now, all it means is that people with un unpopular opinions will never be hired. Exactly, exactly. The third part of this is on the health side. 
we need to decentralize medicine to the edges. It, the health can only emerge from the relation between me and the healer because the body is such a freaking complex system. To mandate medicine top down is a concept of a depersonalized view of the body. Whereas modern medicine is realizing one size does not fit all. So when you look at a guy like Fauci, he's practicing everything which is anti-human, anti-medicine. Number one, he's practicing exclusivity. A small cult of people are gonna decide. Second thing, he's practicing centralization of authority. A few set of people, opacity. How are all these decisions being made? You know, the other piece of it is, it's all about depersonalization, treating everyone like a lump and based on that is why we're all locked up. Everyone is being treated the same when the reality should be we should take the immunocompromised, give them high dose vitamin D, which creates catholicidins, which, which are antimicrobial, give them high dosage vitamin A. And but by the way, those two are very few, no side effect solutions. Give them vitamin C. And for the rest of us, let's take around 5,000 to 10,000. I use a vitamin D and A. And if you want to take other herbs, great, but we should be out there freaking working. This is total nonsense. And, this, and all of this is based on the imposition of fake science by Fauci, and he knows what he's doing. And I think the key is, I'm willing to, let's talk to science, let's talk molecular systems, let's talk infectious disease. Openly in a round table of Gates wants to show up, who has no knowledge of this, if Hillary Clinton wants to show up and if Fauci wants to show up, and they can bring all the scientists they want. I'll take them all on, but the bottom line is that they are actively created this fear mongering on a fake science model, on the ignorance of people's understanding of the immune system. So what we're seeing, Stefan, in closing, you know, if we want to sort of summarize this, we're seeing the conversion of big science, big, you know, academia, big pharma at one point, and it's all to make sure that we have mandated medicine, we suppress dissent, and if it means printing through quantitative easing $6 trillion to crash the economy, they're fine with that. That's like, I'm going to make a $6 trillion investment today which I'll get, you know, if you look at over a 20 year horizon, about what, seven, you know, 7 trillion, 140 trillion over the next 10 years or whatever that is, right? So this is relatively pennies for the global elite. And if people can really understand that we're looking at the consolidation of a corporation, a global elite corporation that spans national boundaries, which is intent on securing their power through a model where all of us are mandated to take a medicine, mandated right into our bloodstream, mandated where if we don't do that, we'll be tracked and not allowed to move. This is one of the most dangerous times we're in. However, the good news is that there's a lot of smart people, common sense people, working people, plumbers, electricians, nurses, engineers, who know something doesn't make sense. And that's why I, I think we're at a very interesting inflection point in human history with this occurrence. And it's probably a huge opportunity for people to get awakened and smash these people. They, they need to be obliterated because what they are doing to humanity is destroying humanity. Because what they're really saying is that I wanna make you a machine in the Chinese factory. <laughs> and China was, you know, China from the elites was their testing ground. And if you think about it, it's China's being exported. It made in China means made in China. And uh, we will consolidate we will, we will, you know, um, you know, create the Chinese Communist Party version of mandated state medicine, mandated state academia, mandated state media, which will deny it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter that a 14 year old kid wrote all the code, you know, the inbox outbox, called it email, has a copyright. Doesn't matter. The first thing they do, and it doesn't matter. My four degrees at MIT won't matter. 
right? Because when you go against them, they will attempt to attack you. And the only way out of this is to go viciously after them. That's the only way to win, Stefan. Uncompromisingly go after them. And that's the way we're going to win. And we also have to recognize that the establishment is always not the enemy. It's the not so obvious establishment. Those people that they put, like the Bernie Sanders. So all you Bernie Sanders people listening out there, he sold out to Hillary Clinton. And all you people who think Bobby Kennedy is, is going to fight for your medical freedom, he endorsed Hillary Clinton. He attacks Gates. You know, so people say, oh, Bobby attacks Gates. Well, you know what? He endorsed Hillary Clinton three times. There's nothing more to talk about, period. So the way we're going to win is to get wake up and realize this movement's going to come bottoms up from working people like me and you and others, Stefan, who speak the truth, and it's going to be bottoms up. It's not going to be top down. Hollywood celebrities, we don't need you. You know, the Kennedys, we don't need you. And it's going to be bottoms up. And when people get this, we're going to have a revolution like that. I'm telling you, if you look at history, and it won't have to even be violent. It'll be an awakening that says, wait a minute, this is my body. I'm going to decide what goes into my body. No one owns it. And you know what? The sun is an amazing vehicle. It produces vitamin D. It produces catholicidins. And you know what? Fresh vegetables without pesticides are what I need. Clean air, clean water, clean food. Meanwhile, in the United States, we have a D plus in infrastructure. Massachusetts, the home to MIT, the home to Harvard, the home to all the elites. You know what, what they got by the American Society of Civil Engineers for Infrastructure? An F minus minus, 125 points out of 350. The worst, the third worst infrastructure, which means crumbling bridges, crum, crum, crumbling roads, crumbling water systems. Who the hell are these people like Elizabeth Warren, all these academic people, they have nothing. They should shut the hell up and talk about public health. You have no credibility, nothing. So we need to understand that we need to stop, stop paying so much respect to these people. They've lost all of our respect. F minus minus in infrastructure, Massachusetts. And Massachusetts got a D plus plus in the worst corruption. The 10 most corrupt, corrupt state, the third most uh, breaking infrastructure. And if you look at the history of infectious diseases, if we really want to talk about infectious diseases, you know how they've been solved? Not through vaccines or medical interventions, through infrastructure. Go back to the 1900s. Mm, right. 40 out of, out of 100,000 people had infectious diseases, okay? It dropped down before the polio and measles vaccine to one half out of 100,000. How did that occur? Vitamin A, nutrition, sanitation, refrigeration, elimination of child labor. And how did we get that? Well, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a massive true working class movement, militant movements of people said, hell no. And they knew that the bourgeois in this country, like the Franklin Delano Roosevelt, were part of the global elite. They're not going to give it to them. They went to the streets. They fought. That's how we got it. And after that, we had the Red Scare. All of those in, you know, organic workers were made to be communists, right? So they branded everyone as communist, communist, communist. That was part of this. That was part of the a recognition that you don't want indigenous popular movements coming up, populism. You had to brand them as something, Nazis or communists or whatever. But we need to understand that infectious diseases, a plumber and the sanitation worker did more for infectious diseases than any pharmacist or doctor. That's what actually happened. Now, if they truly care about infectious diseases, let's start by talking about how much pollution that's in the atmosphere and how much the Paris Accords allows China to pollute. Paris Accords allows China to go from 11 billion metric tons of carbon to 22 billion. That's why even the Chinese in China were protesting out on the streets, risking their lives. And 
Let's talk about clean water, clean air. You know, we allow companies like Monsanto, which now is a part of Bayer, who have polluted, destroyed the topsoil of this country, have enslaved many, many farmers. But they don't want to talk about that, the 70% of lawyer lobbyists, because they're part of the problem. They do not want to talk about clean air, clean water, clean food. They don't want to talk about the 30% obesity. They don't want to talk about the, you know, 800, 700,000 people die of heart disease and so on. They don't want to talk about the 1.9 million hospitalizations that occur every year from pharmaceutical drug adverse reactions. None of, let's shut, I say we shut down everything and solve that. And during that shutdown, let's start doing farms. Let's shut down Monsanto if we cared about public health. But that shutdown is not what I see. What I see is a shutdown to destroy the American worker, to seize people's assets and properties, and to basically destroy this economy on behalf of Bill Gates, Hillary Clinton, Deep State, the WHO, the Chinese Communist Party, to basically seize power of not only the American worker, but the world work, everyday people. So we become a factory. We become automatons in a large factory which is what China has done, and we lose our humanity. That's what this is about, Stefan. This is about freedom or slavery. This is not just about a freaking vaccine or a virus. This is about an important point in human history. And this has occurred over and over again, as we discussed. But I think we have an enormous opportunity, actually, to rise up and to reclaim our destiny as human beings. Well, I've said from the beginning that... Uh... SARS-CoV-2 is doing a much better job of attacking our liberties than attacking our bodies. And that, to me, is the real, it's, it's the body politic that is uh, really succumbing to this uh, horrible virus. Listen, I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I really feel illuminated, educated, mind blown. And please go and check out uh, Shiva for Senate. And um, thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry, sorry that we didn't get to people's questions. Perhaps we can lure you back on. Uh, right. Certainly, this has been, wow, quite a number of people watching this broadcast. So uh, a great Stephen, pleasure. I'm Let sorry? everyone know. go to shivaforsenate.com. If you support the campaign, I've actually created a book and a tool that people can actually understand how their body is a system. It's a very powerful educational tool. And in this time of economic distress, if you can't donate to get it, write to me at vashiva at vashiva.com. And we are also giving away scholarships. And anyone in Massachusetts that's listening or people you know in Massachusetts, tell them to go to Shiva for Senate, scroll down and have them click a button where we will mail you a nomination ballot so you can sign it and get, get it in so we can get on the ballot. Everyone should do that. We need to win. This is not about winning a Senate election. This is about a victory in the center of the deep state that will, will be such a massive defeat to them. Just my getting on the ballot will be a significant defeat. Winning the Republican nomination will be a, third, a second defeat and becoming the next U.S. Senator will be a massive defeat. So that's the journey that we're on, Stefan. Well, I actually just would, I mean, if I were in Massachusetts, I would do it just to see you cross-examine Dr. Fauci, which would, I think, be uh, something for the ages. So thanks again, Dr. Shiva, okay. a great thank pleasure, you. and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Stephen. Bye-bye. Very, very, yeah, thank you.